As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. And once again, I know you're going to get sick of me saying this, but I am super, super, super excited for today's conversation. As I've said in the past, this podcast is literally me doing my learning in public on in, on topics I find interesting with people I find interesting and people I want to learn from. And hopefully by doing so, it serves as a tool for political education in an accessible way. So welcome to the show, Stefan. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited about this. No, it's an absolute pleasure. So given our current juncture and moment and thinking through the reintroduction and the newfound interest in Marxism today. Every so often I find on Twitter, Marx, Marxism is trending. What do you owe that to in your understanding? Uh, well, I have no idea what trending on Twitter possibly could mean, but uh, there, <laughs> there are a, I'm, I'm militantly offline, but there are a couple of layers to this. So in the first instance, there's the, there's the moment we're in now, which is the post-Bernie moment, let's say the, the, the post-electoralist moment in the history of the left. But the relevant sort of category here is the post-2008 period. And the reason why Marxism, I think, the straightforward reason why Marxism gained a new lease on life after 2009 was because bourgeois economists who had won the day in the Cold War period really had no explanation for the, for the great financial collapse that happened in 2008, 2009. And because they didn't see it coming and because they had no remedy for it, they had no crisis theory on hand to explain what had just happened. And so Marxism's first, and I think still its primary usefulness, is as a crisis theory. That is, it can explain why it wasn't possible for people like Ben Bernanke to uh, simply moderate the business cycle. That, in fact, capitalism was prone to these large collapses, booms, busts, and, and I think we're headed for another bust soon enough. And I imagine that that will be followed by another period of Marxist renaissance. I think you basically answer my second question as well but maybe just to unpack further mm -hmm. in terms of okay we understand it's newfound lease of life but what in your understanding is marxist relevance what is marxism's relevance in our day oh yeah i mean look there are what is marxism actually let me let me try to say what i think marxism is first and okay then we can decide on its relevance the word is thrown around a lot and that's not new the word has been thrown around i mean since god since the since the Gotha Conference, right? Since the founding of the SPA Day, when Marxism became the name of an ideology associated mm -hmm. with a political party, with a concrete political party. Today, of course, that's not quite true. I mean, even if the DSA is something like a, like a parapolitical party, something like a political party, maybe in formation, its official economic doctrine is, is, the, is Marxism. That is, Marxism is referenced a lot. It doesn't bear much relation to the body of, of doctrine that I think of as core. So, and that's that's in two layers, two later layers. In the first instance, it's the critique of political economy as it's found in the three volumes of capital. It tells us 
what value is and why it is the you know why it's in the tendency of capital to not only accumulate over time but to break down that is its ability to become profitable in the long term is untenable and that that basic insight with the capitalist economy and its internal contradiction is a species of well historical materialism which is a doctrine about the the underlying forces at work in history and briefly put that's just to say that humans the history of human society has a long-term tendency to to advance its means of production it's a it's a skills its abilities what and how it produces and that the rest of our social relations are fit to our capacities and we're constantly in a state of fitting relations to capacities and everything about politics everything about the surface level of society even down to the structure of the family is dependent upon those underlying forces so look if it's the case that Marxism has an excellent explanation for how we got into this mess and how we might survive the next one, and I mean here just economic downturns, not not the other crises, right? Climate change, the threat of nuclear war, which are all very real. You know, you you might have noticed that leftists love their apocalypses, so you can take your pick. <laughs> in fact, if you in the one of the reasons why Marxists or leftists in general like their apocalypses is because. They are trying to, well, for a long time, up until I think 2009, they were trying to find another kind of terminal crisis that could replace the economic terminal crisis that classical Marxism had envisioned. But of course, we don't need to envision one anymore because, because actual terminal economic crisis might, might be upon us. My, my least popular view is that capitalism is already over. In fact, it ended 10 years ago, and we haven't quite adapted social relations to forces of production quite yet. So given, in my understanding, and my coming to Marxism, hmm. I recognize a potency that it has in political organizing in getting to the kernel of oppression and how we understand exploitation. In your understanding, once again, what do you think Marxism offers us in terms of political organizing that perhaps other theories don't in the academy specifically, let's say cultural studies or postmodernist studies? What do you think it is about Marxism that offers us a specific tool or analysis that helps us, you know, produce action that maybe the other tools don't? Yeah, you know, I, I would, so here I want to make another distinction between those forms of critique that are proper to the academy, what you say, postmodernism, cultural studies, you know, Raymond Williams et al., that, those self-avowed Marxists in the Cold War period in English-speaking academies in the West, that is in the context of capitalist states, Cold War with, with, the, with the actual existing socialist world, that's in a category all by itself. And in fact, it doesn't look like I mean, outside of, I suppose, Marcuse, you know, on the West Coast, uh, in the United States, and a few other smattering instances, was that a driver of political organization? Or did it directly inform the way in which the labor movement or the left in whatever incarnation sort of got itself going? Here's This is kind of what I meant, we were speaking earlier, kind of what I meant by the danger of academia. And look, I'm in the thick of it. I'm a university professor. I'm in academia all the time. And it can be easy to see that as a bigger part of the world than it really is. So there's that on the one hand. And on the other hand, there's the the actually existing strategies of left organizations on the ground. And those come in two varieties up until recently. So on the one hand, you had an electoralist, I don't know, maybe we can say opportunist without being too negative about it, that is taking opportunity of what they take to be the conditions on the ground and doing what is possible. The French called these this position a possibilist position. And that position is really to, to say, look, what we need to do is organize in order to get progressive 
leftists into office. This is the Bernie Sanders strategy writ large, but there are a number of other candidates endorsed by the DSA. And, and this was the sort of Jeremy Corbyn you know, strategy, which is we just need to elect our way into something like socialism in order to push forward the social revolution. And I take it that that was a strategy made in good faith. It, however, is as un-Marxist as can be because classical Marxism <laughs> teaches us that it is impossible <laughs> For the bourgeois state, and this is more and more popular now, Vivek Chiber has the same line, which I take to be to be the Marxist line, at least the Marxist critique of the of the electoralist line. It is impossible for the for the bourgeois state to convert itself into socialism. That is, you can't hold onto the state and you know use it to to convert property relations. It de- it's dependent itself. It's a very intelligibility is dependent on property relations. The other strategy in the actually existing left was, well, the microsect, and. <sighs> The microsect is is a product of a series of splits that historically begins with the Russian Revolution, the First World War, the splitting of the socialist movement, the splitting of the social democratic movement into a communist and a social democratic, that is, into communist and social democratic camps. And the purifying, the seemingly salubrious purifying gesture of the split which of course allowed for Russia to end, or Soviet Union to enter a defensist position, a revolutionary defensist position. Well, that allowed for the intelligibility of innumerable splits. In fact, splits based on nothing except doctrine. And here I'm relying on on, on the work of Mike McNair, who's someone I, I read a lot on these strategy issues. And that that legacy of splits, which runs right down the Trotskyist movement and everything that came after the Trotskyist movement, they sort of invented the sect. Had that had that basic strategy, cadre formation, and and adhering to that line of Lenin's, better, fewer, but better. I take it that neither of those two is going to work. The Marxist strategy is quite simple, and here we can turn to Lars Lee for guidance, who's done a huge amount of work trying to get us trying to get us out of the traps that the post nineteen seventeen period put us in, where we can say, well, look, you know, Marxism is scientific socialism which is the ideology of the self-conscious working class movement, which is, which is just to say that the task of the Marxist socialist is to make, is to make socialist the labor movement. And here, ojo, as my mother would say uh, in, in Spanish, uh, here, not the same thing as the making labor of the socialist movement, which is an entirely different question. So that, that making socialist of the labor movement is, I, I take, the, the, the core of the Marxist theory of organization. But again, look, we have relatively few sources on this question. We have the critique of the GoTo program, which just came out in a great new translation by some friends of mine, Peter Hudis and Kevin Anderson. And that is clarifying on some points of Marx himself. For the rest of it, we have to rely on what, the, what political conclusions we can draw from the three volumes of Capital. So I actually wanted to kind of revisit something we we started to touch on earlier, and it's in the the kind of grander goal of trying to look at how Marxism has changed over time. And I actually and I wanted to start with classifying what is Marxism, and I wanted to like start with Marx himself, because I've been reading for Marx by Louis Althusser, and in this book Althusser breaks up Marx's work in four sections the early works, the works of the break, the transitional works, and the more mature works. But he more broadly illustrates two periods, before and after what he calls an epistemological break. Yeah. And I think it's important to contextualize that Marx is birthing a new philosophy in response to work that precedes him. So, I mean, generally, what do you think of defining periods of Marx's writings 
And what does it mean for identifying what Marxism is, even amongst Marx's own work? Yeah, exactly. These are, of course, heuristic categories. And they always, anytime you're splitting up Marx's work, and they do the same thing with Hegel, by the way, and they do the same thing with Beethoven, an early, Mm -hmm. middle, and a late Beethoven. These periodization schemes for the work of intellectuals and artists are always heuristic. They're always there to tell us something. In Althusser's case, it's a polemic, right? So he's polemicizing against what he takes to be Hegelian Marxists, whom the dialectic is important, that is the transformation through practice of concepts into successor concepts. In fact, the very idea of a successor concept. Althusser wants none of that because he wants to apply what he takes to be the more successful structuralist paradigm, epistemological paradigm, and create a Marxist version of that. I think you'd be hard-pressed in contemporary Marx, you know, Marxological scholarship to find much support for that line these days, although Althusser is very influential among structuralists and very influential in the academy. Is there an early, late, a middle Marx and doesn't matter, depends on what we're looking for. For me, the break comes with, comes with the, really the theory of value. So if there is a mature Marx, it's the Marx of the 1850s. Mm-hmm. And that Marx is one who was expecting a political and primarily an economic crisis to follow the, the revolutions of the, of the late 1840s. That does not come, which, which you know, greatly disappoints both Marx and Engels. And you should look at their letters in, in the collected works about this. It, it comes as a shock and a disappointment. And so Marx sort of goes back to the drawing board. And it's this position, it's from this position of defeat, that he is hard-pressed to come up with a brand new, or at least a full-scale critique of political economy. So I take it that there's the political economic Marx. But what he retains from the earlier period is the insight of, of the German ideology, which is the basic premise of historical materialism. So if there's an early and a late Marx, I take it there's the early Marx with a, let's say, relatively high-altitude view of the driving forces of history, and then a more concrete let's say, politically economic Marx, who teaches us about the theory of value. And those are the two Marxes. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, I wanted to like extend this further and, and start to project this further in time. And when we talk about thinkers, revolutionaries, uh, who we consider Marxists, in trying to grapple with this earlier, we say that Marx is making an insertion to work in intellectuals that precede him, right? And we would say that even thinkers and revolutionaries who we consider Marxists, they Mao, Gramsci, Cabral, they make insertions based on Marx who precedes them, right? But they're making distinct contributions. But what uh, makes these contributions still categorized under the umbrella of Marxism as opposed to breaking from it? That's a really good question. Actually, it touches on something that, that you know, so I, I co-host a podcast called The Measures Taken about the history of Marxism. And, and it's one of the things that I argue with my co-hosts about a lot the way we phrase the question is what's in and what's out of the history of Marxism understood as the history of a theory. Because we have to distinguish on the one hand between Marxism as a theoretical body of literature, as a doctrine, and then what's called Marxist in political practice. I take that the reason why Cabral, Guevara, Che, and Mao, and the, let's say, the more the more recent, really anti-imperialist forms of the of the communist movement, let's call it the communist movement, are downstream of of really it's the organizational history that begins with the SPD. So that what makes them Marxist is that they take their basic orientation from the SPD of the 1870s and make adaptations that they think relevant 
to the conditions on hand. So let me just give you one example. Let's, I, I'm more familiar with the Latin American case rather than the Chinese case. There's just, I don't know, there's a division of labor on the left and there's only so much I know about. But, you know, the case of, of Che Guevara's foquismo and his, his theory of guerrilla warfare, uh, we're talking about strategic questions in the context of anti-imperialist struggles, which are downstream of anti-imperialism in the Leninist movement, which is one wing of social democracy in Europe during the 1890s. And so if you trace that lineage back, you trace it back to a party that calls itself Marxist and is therefore Marxist in some historically relevant sense, even if there is just nothing that connects folkismo with the theory of value. And therefore, it's not properly Marxist in the theoretical sense. Mm, thank you for that. That was a uh, that was uh, very helpful. And I, I want to take it even you know further into today, right? Uh, and I want to kind of re- repeat this question with regards to discourse today. The figures I mentioned are, are from the past, but Marx has really made his mark, right? It, you'd be hard pressed to find discourse within social theory today that doesn't address his work, even if it does so in a, in a lackluster way. But what would what do we classify as anti-Marxist in, in debates today? What is the difference between a break or a continuing of a Marxist tradition today amongst uh, the relevant discussions and, and debates? That's a that's a really good question, actually. And I'm going to make the same distinction, but I'm going to make this that I just did, but I'm going to make it about contemporary literature. So Okay, so on the one hand, there's everything downstream of Marxism in the sense of, well, things that are kind of in the Marxist theory and kind of not in the Marxist theory. So let's take one one conceptual example, the concept of class. The Marxist concept of class is inherited from 1840s socialist discourse. That's that's the first generation of self-consciously socialist political theorizing. This is pre-Marxist now. And they, you know, so you can look at someone like Lorenz von Stein, who's at, who's an 1840s writer. He's a German historian of really the French, the post-1789 uh, French revolutionary process. And Lorenz von Stein is going to look at that French case and say, hey, what happened to the French Revolution? It was supposed to create a society of free individuals who, by virtue of their political, that is their, you know, by virtue of the disassembling of juridical categories inherited from feudalism, the lord and serf, and the establishment of equal rights, was supposed to create the conditions for economic equality and did not, right? So economic equality persisted. There therefore was a, a class formation that happened, as it were, behind the backs of participants. That is, that wasn't instituted by juridical categories and was not enforced consciously through force of arms as the feudal categories had been. And so Marx inherits that notion of class, which is a theoretical rather than an empirical concept, right? So instead of instead of being something in the world that we can point to, Marx inherits a notion of class from these earlier thinkers that is about something behind the surface level of society. This is why, one of the reasons why it's very silly for many people to, to wonder you know, and worry about what class they're in. Class is the sort of thing that doesn't happen on the surface level of society, at least not, not while Marx is concerned. So if we're talking about class at all, because the power of the Marxist tradition in history and the way in which class politics became the form of articulation for the social revolution understood theoretically as the transformation of property relations in which individuals own the means of production to property relations in which collectivities, polities, controlled democratically the means of production. And if that, if that transformation was articulated politically in terms of class, we can call it Marxist. Again, for that same historical and political reason. 
Okay, so that's on the one hand, the current relevance, how it's thrown around. On the other, there is a very important body of literature that's grown up since 2008, really, I mean, 2016, even even more recently than that, of people who are trying to who are trying to articulate the Marxist theoretical positions anew and afresh for you and me and all all of us active leftists today. And these people include not only Lars Lee that I mentioned before, but really importantly, people like Andrew Kleiman and like really Fred Mosley and and Maddox Jr. Take Mosley, for example, who tackles what's called the transformation problem. Is that is that something that your listeners would be familiar with? No, um, we're not, we're I'm not. I was gonna say I'm not sure. Yeah. But yeah, it would be great to get a quali- clarification. Yeah. Okay. So, so here's an interesting point. Like now that we're now that we've distinguished the specificity of the theoretical tradition within Marxism as distinct from its political tradition, and I don't mean, of course, denigrate the political tradition. It's one I adhere to and and grew up with. But if we have a distinct theoretical tradition that's just in a body of literature, the transformation problem holds outsized importance, and the reason is because right when the third volume of Capital appeared, which is by the way after Marx's death and when Engels was an old man and could barely see to edit the thing, bourgeois economists had gotten their belts tightened. That is, they'd they'd read their Marxism, they'd read volume one, and they were now on the attack, right? They, They saw, they recognized, in fact, accurately, that Capital's volume one and volume two presented a theory so powerful and so complete that their own theoretical presuppositions would be held in check. So in response, a number of scholars, Böhm Bawerk is the, Eugen Böhm Bawerk is the name of the, of the most important critic of the system. At the moment that volume three appears, argues that volume three is in contradiction, logical contradiction to volume one. And what he calls the transformation problem is the transformation or the so-called necessity to transform theoretically the values that occupy the attention of the reader of volume one with the prices of production that occupy our attention in volume three, and that no such transformation could be possible. That is, uh, if value happens behind the backs of every sale and purchase, and there's a general aggregate of prices and values at the, at the level of the whole, there would be no mechanism for reconciling the system of values with the system of prices, and therefore no way of getting from the theoretical layer in capital to the empirical layer in capital. And for that reason, not only logically inconsistent, but useless for empirical analysis. That critique of Böhm-Baberg was responded to in the 19th century by, well, by Rudolf Hilferding, who was an Austro-Marxist from Vienna, who's absolutely worth reading. But look, I mean, uh, on the back foot Marxists were from then on. And in fact, most, most Marxists, and this might surprise your listeners, most Marxists abandoned the theory of value <laughs> Many of them as a result wow. <laughs> of something downstream of the of the transformation problem. So, for example, you might have heard of, of Okishio's theorem, which was uh, an attempt more recently to demonstrate the same kind of inconsistency. Well, look, Fred Mosley recently, Andrew Kleiman a little less recently, they have they've come up with real ways to read capital that do away with the transformation problem, making the theory of value newly accessible to us, maybe for the first time since the 1890s. We might be theoretically speaking, the first generation of Marxists since the 1890s. Mm, I want to actually address something you had spoken about earlier in your answer, which is where uh, Marx inherits inherits his idea of class or wh- where he comes to his understanding of what class is. And mm. I wanted to ask if you if there are other conflicting you know social or political theories or economic theories that purport a different definition of class and what then is the consequences 
of that. I bring this up because, I mean, recently I, I had a friend just ask, you know, what really is class? And so I was hoping you could kind of reiterate what that definition of class is according to Marxism and if there are any other conflicting definitions of class within other social, political, or economic theories? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. You know, I mean, the concept of class, which has become so important these days, you know, I mean, every time, every time the, you know, the DSA wants us, to, wants us to focus on the working class, or God forbid, the, the MAGA communists that are popping up online, and let's hope they stay online. Honestly, I know. Yeah, isn't that horrible? I mean, it just makes you, it just makes you want to run out the door screaming. Literally. <laughs> that's okay i think they're gonna i think they're gonna kick out caleb Maupin from the from the communist party i hope they do all of which is to say you know they want us to focus on the real working class and the, you know what they think of as the real working class are i don't know some fantastical image of a new deal era blue collar worker on a construction site poetically perched on top of a of a suspended beam above a above a high rise but you know instead i i think that you know marx the, the value form theorists, the German value form theorists distinguish between an esoteric and an exoteric Marx. That is an esoteric Marx of theoretical consistency. That is the one we see in capital and to some extent the German ideology. And the exoteric Marx, that is the public facing Marx, if you will, that we find in the 18th Brumaire and the Communist Manifesto and in those other places. That exo exoteric Marx is where we find the concept of class. But let's now face a hard truth. Marx, and there's great Bertel Ullmann classic article on this that you can find on JSTOR, which I love. Marx uses the word class to mean really just everything. <laughs> he means it to mean any kind of segment in society, whether or not it's distinguished by its property relations or not, hmm. which of course drives people crazy, especially mm -hmm. people who are inclined toward empiricism. So take someone like the late, great Eric Olin Wright, who spent a huge amount of his career trying to come up with empirical criteria to decide who's in what class and how many of them are there. This is just not a reasonable proposition. I take it that the Marxist conception of class as it's found in Marx with a good faith reading of the literature in Marx and reconciling it with capital, that we can say that, that class is a kind of propaganda concept. That is, it allows us to feel a kind of solidarity and a form of personal investment in organizing in the workplace primarily in order to transfer control of the workplace to democratic bodies of workers. We can think of in terms of class, but if you're trying to use it any more in any more specific sense than that, if you're trying to use it in a theoretical way, right, trying to get to the bottom of it, as it were, you're just never going to get to it because there is no bottom of it. Mm, wow, wow. Yeah, so the last question for me is kind of circling back to when we were discussing what are kind of the core beliefs of Marxism. In your opinion, what is the most important of these core beliefs? What is the most important of these central te tenets with regards to, uh, you know, the political happenings of today? Yeah, I have a really concrete answer for this, which which might which your listeners might like, and but but most of my grad students don't. <laughs> I think there's just one, which is that it just so happens that in the history of productive technologies more and more industries that are subsumed within capitalist social relations. And let's be really specific about what I mean by that. The capitalist mode of production isn't any form of commodity production, right? So if I'm a, you know, if, there's there's things that are just not commodity production, like service employment. If I, if I pay someone to clean my house, that's not the capitalist mode of production and nothing has been 
you know, nothing's been commodified or anything. Then there's, of course, petty commodity production, which is small-scale production. Think of artisanal craft labor. I write about the musician. I'm a music historian. Uh, music is often made, uh, like many fine arts, are often made on this craft basis. In fact, if you ask me or if you ask someone even even smarter than me, like Dave Beach, uh, who's great on this and has written on this, it just is the, what makes the fine arts the fine arts is that they're carried on in this craft non-capitalist, that is non-exploitative way. However, more and more industries, and you can see this right in front of you, went through a factory phase and are now in a phase of development in which the most efficient form of their usefulness is as coordinated networks. So think of transportation, think of electricity, think of the internet, my God, the internet, which only functions in this networked way that everything is going the way of the post office, as it were. Not because that's good or that's bad, but because in order to make best use of the resources that society has available, in order to make us all wealthier and prosperous, we just can't run them in this in this way that, you know, in which individuals control large scale uh, production. So think of the irrationality, for example, of Twitter. I love this example because, because you know, it's in the news and, uh, and it's just perfect, it's, you know, here's this resource, and I want to be entirely neutral about whatever its usefulness is. Let's just assume, for the sake of argument, that Twitter meets some social need. God knows people use it, so let's assume it meets one. If it does meet a social need, then, then uh, you know, it is patently ridiculous that its owner should be Elon Musk, just this one crazy man. In fact, that can't be the most efficient use uh, way to use this, uh, you know, distributed networked technology. The internet's just not up for capitalist social relations in which individuals own the means of production. And for that reason, we, are, we will become systematically poorer if we do not transform those relations. Marxism teaches us that our future is poverty if we don't become collective owners of those resources. Thank you. Just circling back to, I mean, I guess for my own uh, learning and people I'm, I'm sure are going to maybe have similar questions. So when people say that your class is produced by your relationship to the means of production, is that an incorrect statement. It's an incomplete statement. So let's take an example. Let's take a worker who has inherited money from their parent, but who still is exploited in a nine to five, you know? So they've got an office job. And uh, like Marx says of the, of the hack writer, has become proletarianized. And, you know, say they're, a, I don't know, they, they're, they're, making some content for BuzzFeed or something. But they've inherited some money from their parent. And this is, this is true for a lot of millennials here in the United States, at least, I'm sure in the UK too. And therefore, they own some bit of property and say they rent this property out as, you know, at, on Airbnb. Well, this individual is now in two class relations at the same time, a rentier that is a speculative capitalist and an exploited worker. So I think the, the, the way, the more concrete way of talking about class, if one wants to retain the category, as I say, for propagandistic purposes, is to, is to remember that class, if it's to refer to capitalist social relations or exploitation on the job, is not the sort of thing that adheres to individuals, because individuals can occupy all kinds of class positions. Okay, thank you for that. And in terms of your example you gave of, uh, let's say, someone hiring a domestic worker, is there labor not a commodity in this example? Uh, right. No, there, well, labor is never a commodity. The commodity that's sold to the capitalist is labor power. Labor power, yes. Marx makes a big, yeah, big deal out of that. You know, say if someone comes to my house and cleans my house for, for, a, for a fee, the service mm -hmm. that they're performing is in their control 
at the you know for the for the for the time in which it's produced and that service is remunerated at its value or at least that's the theoretical presupposition um of course i can you know i can stiff the worker and therefore would be cheating them out of some some amount of the value of their of their of their commodity but their commodity is not labor power their commodity is the service of cleaning the house Thank you for those clarifications. That was for me as well. <laughs> okay, in, th- in thinking about our um, current moment, strategy. I mean, oftentimes we speak about theory in these high and mighty terms and people often, okay, then what do we do? So in thinking about that, I know it's a very grand and broad question. I'm probably a bit much of an ask, but let's think about North America. I mean, we've I've heard your, we've sent a few shots at the DSA and Bernie Sanders in this episode. So in <laughs> thinking about strategy going forward, what can we do in North America and your understanding using Marx's analysis? Oh, poor benighted North America. I feel I feel so much bad, so much worse about our own deliriously degenerate political culture if if the UK's deliriously degenerate political culture weren't so much worse and funnier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, we're in this one together, guys, right? I mean, you know, yes. uh, across across the pond here, we're. I mean, we did the we did the Corbin Sanders thing together, and and we're doing the we did the Brexit Trump thing together, and I think our our fates are tied, and and I'll tell you yeah. why. You know, we throw around the Marxist world, like we throw around the word imperialism a lot, and yeah. the word imperialism in the 1890s, when it was invented, and what imperialism meant for Lenin was not necessarily colonial intervention or you know say you know you know american intervention in in iraq say right of, of course that's a part of it but classical that is hardcore imperialism if that category can be can be admitted is what's happened is what just happened to liz truss that's imperialism that's the market coming to run roughshod over democratic politics and so why mm-hmm. why does she have to resign because the market won't allow her to govern yeah. <laughs> so, so okay, and that's you know I imagine that will happen in the United States if if Donald Trump takes the next election. But that's avoiding your question thus far. Your question was, what do we do? And here I have another maybe all too concrete answer. First, a mm-hmm. critique. The thing to remember is you're not going to elections are useful. They're what Jane Mac McAlevey calls structure strength tests. Is the workplace organized? Well, one way to, you know, is is the sector organized? Well, one way to to test its organization is whether or not it can be disciplined in the voting booth. That's very important to demonstrate for any political or, or labor organization. But what we're really electing for isn't socialism. What we're what we're going to the polls to do is to exert as much strength as possible as the as a so a self-consciously socialized socialist working class movement to make it easier to organize that working class movement. But the goal exactly. is not a socialist state in the United States. I take it that socialism in say the United States would mean that the United States no longer existed. And in fact, I think that I will outlive the United States. At least I certainly hope so. And if that's true, then we're talking about overthrowing the government. In the first, in the very first instance, there is no socialism that is not a form of anarchism in that restricted sense, which isn't to get into the weeds about the difference between Marxism and anarchism as it is today on the ground. So we need dual power. That is, every workplace, every mm. every building needs a council. And those councils need to be in the business of demonstrating their capacity to after a revolutionary transformation, take direct control over organizing things. And in a state in which the United States can't guarantee that the water coming out of your faucet isn't poisonous, it can't guarantee that the road you're driving on won't collapse underneath you, under conditions in which the, in which the, the state is unable to deliver on the basic, let's say, assumed, um, you know, uh, its assumed role in, in structuring society, it is there that a working class movement, a socialist working class movement can 
make the good faith argument to the majority. They'll probably never be the majority, right? But you can make the good faith argument to the majority that the political institutions you built up in a dual power way are ready to take over from the United States and run society on their own. Could, Thank you could so you, much. Could you clarify what is meant by dual power? Yeah, this is an old Leninist thing. So, you know, okay, so in the context of the Russian Revolution, there were, of course, many wings to Russian social democracy and many more splits than the famous Menshevik-Bolshevik split. Uh, right. I mean, you can just think of the, the split over Brest-Litovsk, which pits, you know, Bukharin against uh, against Lenin, et cetera, et cetera. You know, whether or not there's a there's a revolutionary defeatist position and, and so on. But the, the concept of dual power was whether or not the socialist movement would form part of the state, that is, whether or not it would want to elect representatives to the Duma, or whether it would not, whether the, whether there would be what Lenin said, you know, all power to the Soviets. That is, the councils that had grown out of strike committees, really. I mean, it's a natural, it's a natural form of working class self-organization where you're gonna you've got a workplace, you want to organize it, you want to organize that that workplace, it turns out you gotta organize the sector. So industrial unionism sort of comes comes about as a as an outgrowth of that. From industrial unionism, you don't have a you don't have a bullet in your barrel if you can't call a strike. Strikes require committees. Out of the strike committees comes the form of executive leadership for independent working class organizations. And those strike committees, now Soviets, or I prefer just to say councils, those councils become de facto governing bodies. And in fact, what Lenin meant by all power to the councils was exactly what I mean uh, when I say to do away with the United States, even as Handmaid's Tale as that might sound, which is, I guess, our only popular cultural imagination for, for, a, for a revolutionary transformation in the United States, a dark one. But it's in that context that you can say, well, look, the, the state has to just be replaced by federated councils. Oh, see, you, you give such good answers. I have more questions. I've got a couple more, actually. I think the example you gave of Liz Truss, I think people will think hearing that, oh, what do you mean imperialism took place in the UK? They are the imperialists. So do you have like maybe a working definition of how we understand imperialism? People often think it's what occurs at the behest of the United States and the, the West in the global South. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I, I, you know, look, let me admit to something. When I say that, 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 you know, list trust was destroyed by imperialism. I mean that to be, I mean that, to, you know, to, to, it, but is the, is the, the word in French, it's a, to bother people as it were, to be polemical. Um, okay. <laughs> but I do mean it in a technical sense. I actually think that I, that in a technical sense, I'm right. And that's just to draw attention to the following. And it, you asked after the classical uh, definition of imperialism. So here again, a little bit of history. Imperialism means what? Where, where in the world did that come from? Well, it comes out of theorizing about the revolutionary process in France. And as you might remember from reading your marks, that Marx says that the French Revolution draped itself in classical analogies. So think of all those Roman names that those French revolutionaries took on. They saw them. They saw themselves, in fact, you know, establishing a, a republic. Well, where did they get the idea of a republic? Well, they got that from classical literature. So there was always a parallel, a self-conscious parallel drawn between the classical world and the French revolutionary process. Well, in the classical world, there is a famous instance of the transformation of a republic into an empire. It, you know, the crossing of the Rubicon, the the establishment of of you know of Caesar's of Caesar's rule, etc. Right, the doing away of of the republic in Rome. Well, Napoleon, the Napoleonic phase of the French Revolution was thought of in roughly the same terms. That is, that is, people who were theorizing about the political effects of the French Revolution saw that the democratic republic, the rep democratic republicanism of, of the Jacobins, for example, was then replaced by an imperialist phase of Napoleon. 
And the thing gets worse when you get to the Russian Revolution, because it looks like the Russian Revolution in its democracy of councils has a Republican phase, now a proletarian democratic phase, and then a Thermidor, which is the rise of Stalin, and then an imperialist phase then. So the, the word imperialism comes out of a literature that is not tracking political economy. It comes out of a literature that's tracking the, let's call it the natural history of revolutionary processes which are supposed to establish dem democracies, but are always threatened by relapsing or perhaps degenerating into an imperialist phase. Okay, so what does Lenin mean when he talks about imperialism? Or what does Kautsky mean? Or what do any of these people mean? Well, they're talking about a decadent phase in the history of capitalism, in which a democratic Republican political form proper to, let's say, a more distributed form of early petty, you know, petty commodity production being replaced in the era of factory production with an imperialist phase that is a anti-democratic phase. So it's centered, and this is what I hope to emphasize here, it's centered on whether or not democracy is being upheld by its, by the, you know, uh, by capitalists' political representatives, capitalism's political representatives. Okay, so why do I say Liz Trust was the victim of imperialism? Well, precisely because, you know, in the context in which large trusts and firms and cartels, you can read Finance Capital, that is uh, Rudolf Helferding again, actually. Rudolf Helferding sort of has the has the best and most mature theory of, of imperialism in the political economic literature. And it's all about banks. Imperialism means the role that banks and states, which back banks, like our Fed and your Bank of England, which keeps hiking rates, which is going to make us all poorer too, by the way, although they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, that these formations, which are proper to mass manufacturing period of, you know, in, in industrial production, that these would, the, you know, these new formations would go to war against one another. They'd have all these negative political effects, but primarily they'd run roughshod over democracy at home. And so that's exactly, of course, what's happening. What's happening in Britain, which is which is democracy is is dead because the state and its bank is it has to adhere to market discipline, and as a result, is no longer in the business of upholding democratic norms at home. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm talking about UK politics without knowing. I might be talking directly out of thin air here. You got you guys definitely know more than I do. No, no, thank you, thank you, thank you. But that is that to say in Lenin's definition that the the term still holds weight in what happens in the global south at the behest of the United States? Well, right, because the imperialist phase means what? It means that large-scale factory production has necessitated larger-scale capital investment, the sort of yeah. investment that could only be done by trusts and by, by you know, national banking institutions. And that would involve the state in the competitive process, the war of all against all. And as states competed at that level, they would use their standing armies in the competitive sphere and just, you know, subjugating other states, one state subjugating another state in that dynamic is, a, is of course, a part of that dynamic. I mean, the, the case I know best is Chile, in which, I mean, it's just imperialism all over, right? I mean, the, the Chilean state is first beholden to British because it's British capital backing the, you know, the extraction of nitrates. And then when it moves to its copper extraction phase, you know, Chile has always been, of course, you know, a, a primary a raw, raw materials producing country and copper amounts for a huge amount of its economy. Then it was the Americans, right? Anaconda copper, which had, which had interests in Chile. And this just did not allow the Chilean state to foster democracy at home because it was beholden to market forces that were at the global level. And therefore, what happened to, well, lots of versions of the Chilean state, but paradigmatically what happened to the Allende administration was an instance of imperialist, imperialist takeover, as it were, but 
not because of not because of barbarian subjugation, but you know through the unforced force of the of the working out of value. Thank you. And then finally, do you see any strategic value in responding to let's say because I'm this is something this is actually advice for myself and maybe other people who are trying to be involved in some co- or so, some sort of public facing um, scholarship in responding to let's say where people are at because you know people are listening to jordan peterson and marxism for example or listening to what's out there in the in the mainstream do you see any strategic value in responding and refuting these claims by these people no i don't and in fact i think that we've made a huge (laughs) the the left media sphere has made a gigantic error in my view which is that it isn't doing what i take it that you're doing and that what i intend to be doing on my podcast which is political education in public in fact i love that you present your work that way. I think that that, in fact, I think that the work that, that, that we're involved in, that you're involved in is invaluable. The, there, I wanted, I wanted a big wall Thank you. between that and the majority report or mm. the, the, the left Twitter sphere. You know, those mm. are people, those are media personalities and they spend their time talking about other media personalities. And mm. Jordan Peterson is not a political figure. He has control over nothing. Right. Right. And I take it that we do want to change minds, but not all minds, certainly not the minds of those who click like and subscribe. Instead, we have to, in the first instance, change the minds of our neighbors, if we're tenants, change, or you know, uh, in some other living situation, shelters, et cetera. That is, change the minds of our neighbors, and in the second instance, change the minds of our coworkers in the mm-hmm. process of creating concrete institutions that are ready to take control over the day-to-day processes of running a living facility, like a building, like an apartment building, paradigmatically, or any kind of you know, productive space. And even in the academy, even though it's technically not exploitative in the same sense, even in the academy, that is everyone who, everyone who works for a wage ought to be changing the minds of the people around them and talking mostly to people who don't agree with them already. And I take it that if you're mocking Jordan Peterson for an hour on your show, you, you are not talking to anyone who doesn't already agree with you. Thank you so much for that. This has been an insightful episode. I am going to, I thought I was going to close up, but Christian, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it's interesting because you talk about media personalities and then you brought up the Academy. And I just, just thinking, do you, do you think this like fixation that left had, that the left has is, is somehow with producing media personalities is somehow tied to the Academy itself. I I think a lot of times the Academy seeks to pub pump out people who people who will ultimately engage in 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 becoming media personalities it's almost like producing a a professional class that's concerned with that do you do you see a connection there oh yeah in in fact i'm glad you brought that up i work in the academy but i take it that the academy right now is and, and you can see this as okay so you know more and more of my colleagues are especially older colleagues who are less comfortable with the new forms of media are finding it an imperative like a career imperative to have social media presences. There's such a thing as, I'm a musicologist, that there is musicology Twitter, you know, right? Okay, this is a long transformation, but the way in which academics become promoted is by getting their name out there, right? In in fact, what I'm doing right now, right? This is, you, you get promoted by gaining clout. And you gain clout through vehicles that are some segment of the media sphere. Now, if you're in an esoteric, 
corny of the academy and you're talking to six people and their brother or something, perhaps the, you know, you're able to win them over through your media presence at a pretty high, in a pretty high-minded way. That's increasingly impossible. And more and more of the academy is just beholden to to really whatever the large social media institutions think their advertisers would like to see. And that's just a form, general form of degeneracy. So this is just part of my general take on this, which is, yeah, if you're an academic, you're also a media personality. So it's important to, important to do good work to provide the working class movement in its socialist phase with as theoretically a robust grounding as possible. But the, that's not political. The political work comes with organizing a workplace and really nothing else. Thank you. Thank you. I'm done. Thank you so much, Professor uh, Stefan. This has been an insightful <laughs> you got, you let me go on my soapbox for the, that. Was, you, that was, you no no challenges. I was expect I was expecting to be fought with. <laughs> no, I, I, I largely agree, but exactly, yeah. I agree. <laughs> no, this has been a, a, a truly insightful conversation. I'm actually. I do hope we can do more in the future. I really do hope. I'm I'm trying to just think about ways in which we make political edu- education. Um, accessible in, yeah. in, so I do hope we can do some more in the future I'm going to leave out oh no you don't have your socials so I'm going to promote your podcast in the comments so people can check it out please yes and I know and great. other than that if I have any follow-ups I will be sure to kind of send them to you and maybe I can we can engage some dialogue through via email in the future this is the Malcolm Effect please like comment subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or on anything that you listen to podcasts on. Until next time, peace out.